0: Okay. Uh, Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, it's time to... Let me get this back a little bit. There we go. I'm too old for close-ups. Okay. It's, uh, I was wondering what I was going to talk about today because this is the first Sunday I've given a talk here at IBMC. Uh, Last Sunday, I gave a talk in Montclair at the UU Congregation of Montclair, and uh, it was fun. And uh, so this Sunday, I'm going to talk about things I have found interesting and unusual about Buddhism over my years of practice and study, and you might find some of these interesting as well. Okay. Okay. First thing I found interesting was the way the Buddha was born, the way Siddhartha was born, uh, in a very unusual way. Uh, He was born out of the side of his mother and, uh, and then took seven steps on lotus flowers and the rain came from the heavens and washed him off in his first birth. Now, it's... Difficult, I think, for a Westerner to look at that as as factual and scientific. But if you look at some of the birth stories of famous spiritual people, uh, Christ, for instance, Immaculate Conception, what you find is there's a certain um, logic behind it. It makes it so interesting and so unusual, it's hard to forget. And I think that's how uh, we remember these stories for such a long period of time. You know, uh, thousands of years in some cases, because they're just not normal stories. and, And that makes it special. And, of course, the people in the story are special as well. Now, unfortunately, the Buddha's mother, Maya, died seven days after his birth, And went to heaven. Uh, And her sister, who was also married to the king, took over as Siddhartha's stepmother and raised him. Well, you know, in the West, again, it's an interesting idea to marry both sisters and have a multitude of wives. Um, And and so that also stuck with me i'm going okay so the sister raised him but then the most interesting thing to me about the sister uh prajapati who uh, raised siddhartha when siddhartha became the buddha uh she was left without a husband because the king had died and she was left without a stepson because siddhartha became the buddha and left And she didn't have a man in her life. And in India at that time, you really needed to have a man in your life. And so she asked the Buddha to ordain her. And he said, no, no, I can't do that because there's no women ordained uh, in India at the time. And it might invalidate some of my teachings to have a woman ordained and so I can't do it. And she was very disappointed, but she didn't give up and she went to the next little village that he was talking in and said the same thing. Why can't you ordain me as a nun? Why don't you give me something to do with the rest of my life? Why can't you do that? And he explained again. And then they went on to the next village and she took a different approach now. She said, I'm going to talk to Ananda, and I'm going to have Ananda ask the Buddha to uh, ordain me. And so she went and found Ananda, and Ananda said, "Yes, I can do that, and I think I can talk him into it." And so Ananda went to the Buddha and said to the Buddha, um, "You know, your your stepmother raised you." Uh, and kept you alive when you couldn't do it yourself, and now she's lost both men in her life, her stepson and her husband, and so why can't you ordain her as a nun? And he said, well, because uh, we don't have any nuns, and it might invalidate my teachings, and, and it wouldn't be good for the Dharma because the Dharma is too important, um, t- uh, and et cetera, et cetera so then ananda came up with a clever response ananda said well can a woman become enlightened and the buddha said yes of course and then ananda said well why can't a woman be a nun and the buddha sort of gave up and said okay she's going to be the first nun and he ordained her and um, as the first nun in, in buddhism and there's a book called the teri and these are the poems of the first nuns and you can find free versions uh, if you do google search but you can also find other versions on amazon.com if you're curious about what the first nuns in buddhism had to say about living as a nun so that's one of the first things I found just fascinating about Buddhism is just this whole idea of um, no women being ordained, that the Buddha was born in such an unusual way, and and that uh, enlightenment was the key to ordination because both men and women have the potential to be enlightened and that's what i call buddha nature buddha nature is the potential for enlightenment the potential for nirvana okay second thing i found interesting i was reading a story and i forget what um, magazine or book or article i was reading but it was about a fellow in australia and this was a few years ago, and, and he really liked the Buddhism, and he always wanted to be a monk, and he was a vegetarian. And he wanted to get ordained in the Theravada tradition where they eat meat. So he had this sort of uh, crisis of conscience. You know, he was he was concerned that That he may have to eat meat and then, and then break his vegetarian lifestyle or commitment. So I, I thought, what an interesting, you know, dilemma to find yourself in. You, you become a vegetarian because you don't want to cause suffering to the animals you're going to eat. And yet, as a Buddhist monk, you don't want to cause suffering. And yet, you're allowed to eat meat. Now, I've got to add that if you eat meat as a Buddhist monk, there are two requirements. Uh, The first one is the animal cannot be killed specifically for you. So in in the old days, if, uh, uh, say, a farmer invited the monks to dinner uh, and he picked out his favorite hog to slaughter that the monks couldn't eat that meat because it was slaughtered for them. There's also a rule that says if you hear the animal cry in pain, that you can't eat it either. So there are a couple requirements uh, that go into eating meat as a Buddhist monk that are best to follow. Now, one of the questions that came up as I'm reading all this stuff and by the way, the guy did become ordained as a Buddhist monk, and uh, I don't know how he um, uh, rectified the idea of having to eat meat, but apparently he did, and, and he's still a monk. Uh, but then this question came up that I found just fascinating. And, and, and it's, it's uh, okay, if you're going to kill an animal to eat, is it better to kill one big animal that can feed many people or is it better to feed a small animal and kill many more of them so are you going to kill one cow to feed a hundred people or are you going to kill a thousand shrimp to feed a hundred people and and there are some philosophers and 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 some buddhists that have ideas that go either way okay so Some think it's better to kill small animals and more of them. And some feel it's better to kill one big animal and feed more from that. And I'm not sure how I feel about that. But I thought it was an interesting question and another dilemma that a monk has to face when they're eating meat. Okay. So now... The Buddha, you know, was raised in three palaces. It said, and I love the story of the Buddha because it it really makes you appreciate the fact that if you're born in South Central or born in Palis Verdes, you've got the same issues basically because you're a human being and you have to deal with them. And both in both cases, there is suffering involved. There's suffering in Palis Verdes and there's suffering in the South Central. So nobody gets uh, out uh, free in this lifetime, uh, from suffering. So the Buddha was like the Palos Verdes guy, you know, he had three palaces and he had the finest clothes and he always had young people around him and, and, uh, he had plenty to eat and apparently he didn't get very sick. And so the story of him going out into the, into the city for the first time with his charioteer Chana I found fascinating and i was talking to achan amro about this story and he came up with an interesting uh, uh, insight so as you all know if you've heard the story the buddha and his charioteer went out into the streets of the city and they saw this really sick person this really old person this really dead person and this really holy person and achan amro said to me at a conference we had he said, you know what the most important vision of those four visions turns out to be? And I said, no. What do you think? What's the most important? He said the most important vision was the last one, that, that when the future Buddha, Siddhartha, saw the holy person, he realized at some level that there was a way out of suffering. And that was the key, the holy life. And, and I had never thought about it in that way. I thought the other three were much more interesting, that he had never seen a really sick person or a really old person or a really dead person and, and how it just sort of you know, transformed his way of looking at the world in this one outing with Chana. And, and yet, Achan Amro, and I think he's right about this, said, but the key was, the key was the holy person. So at the uh, age of 35, he he left his family at 29. And I thought that was interesting, too, because as Venerable Hung Shur said one time and even wrote a song about it, he said um, before he left his wife, he said, when I find the answer, when I become free from suffering, uh, I'll come back and get you. I'm going to come back. Okay, his wife, I'm sure, just said, "Okay, see you then. And he went out, and and, um, six years later, at the age of 35, he achieved his nirvana. And he did finally come back. And his wife brought her son, their son, little Rahula, and said, This is your dad. This is your dad. I told you all about him. And he used to be a very rich man. He has a lot of stuff. And you should go up and ask for your inheritance, and so little rahula went up to his dad who was now the buddha and said dad dad can you give me my inheritance i want my inheritance mom said that you have a lot of money can you give me my inheritance and the buddha thought for a moment and said sure son i can give you your inheritance i'm going to make you a monk So he ordained his son and became a monk. And now, again, we have a woman who's been abandoned by all her men, you know, uh, her son and her husband, and there she stands alone. And she says, well, how about me? What am I going to do? And he said, well, I'll ordain you as well. And so she became ordained too as a nun. So the whole family became uh, monks and nuns. And again, I found that just fascinating. In 1994, and the picture behind me are the ordaining masters of the grand ordination we, have, we had here in 1994, where I took my novice uh, ordination. And two years later, I took my full ordination. But at that 1994 ordination, there was a Vietnamese family And the family, uh, mother, father, and daughter. And they were all at the grand ordination to get ordained. So the whole family got ordained. And then after the ordination process, dad went to one temple, mom went to another temple, and the daughter went to a third temple. And I thought to myself, wow, talk about a commitment that the whole family was so involved with Buddhism that they felt the best way to spend the rest of their life was as a monk or a nun. And they came to that 1994 ordination for that purpose and, and received the ordination and off they went. So that just sort of blew my mind when I thought about it, that, that a whole family could, be, could see Buddhism as being the way out as the refuge, as a way of ending their suffering and finding joy and peace in this world. Okay, so as I continued to read and understand, I, I came upon some stories about the Buddha, where he would be able to do these magical, mystical things, even fly, fly through the air. And I, I just, you know, being a Westerner, I thought to myself, man, I, I can't buy into that. That's I, I. I came to Buddhism for the philosophy and the practice, and and. And a, a way of understanding myself, and and a way of ending some of my suffering in this very lifetime. So I went to my uh, primary Dharma teacher at the time, Dr. Ratnasara, and I said, "Dr. Ratnasara, you know all these little fairy tales that I keep reading about in, in Buddhism. Do I do I have to believe those things? Because I can't. I, I you know I just don't buy into it." And he looked at me. And he said in a, in a very understanding way, he said, no, Kusala, it's okay, it's okay. He said, they're in there for a purpose, uh, but, but it's not necessarily the kind of truth you're looking for. He said they're in there because they allow a variety of people to come to Buddhism. So think of a tree, think of a tree and think of the bark on a tree. Now, the tree can't survive without the bark. And the bark can't survive without the tree. So these stories, these, these mystical stories, are the bark of the tree. But the core of the tree is, are the, is the Dharma and, and, and enlightenment. That's the core. But the bark keeps Buddhism alive because people are fascinated by that stuff. Now, I can understand why you're not And I understand that you're more interested in in the philosophy than the mystical stories, but but they both work together. And believe me, you don't have to believe that to be true in order to practice the philosophy and the Dharma of Buddhism. And I said, okay. So I was able to look at that in a much different way and, and appreciate the stories for what they were, but of course appreciate the philosophy because the philosophy was was the key to this whole practice and to this whole path. Okay, so now we're, we're going along and, and practicing and everything's doing really good, and, and I'm going, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But how about this meditation? Do we really need to meditate every day? You know, uh, in, in the Zen tradition, because here at the center, um, we were founded by uh, Venerable Thich Tianan. And Venerable Thich Thien was from the Thien tradition, T-H-I-E-N, which is the Zen tradition in Vietnam. And in the Zen tradition, there's a strong emphasis on practice and meditation and, and the transformation of consciousness. Okay, so, so should we practice every day? Well, you know, if you're a layperson and you have a family and you have a job and you have car payments and you have a mortgage and you have all those other things. Practicing can, can really enhance your life and, and make your life better. But it's hard to find time every day in a consistent way. But if you can, yeah, absolutely. You know, you don't want to miss it. How long should you meditate? Well, I think the optimal time in meditation is probably around 40, 40, 45 minutes. But if you can get 10 minutes in a day, maybe 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes in the evening, think of it as bookends on your day. That's fine. And that will make a difference. And then somebody says, but how do you know it's making a difference? How can you tell that your meditation practice is actually working? Well, you can because if you tend to be a little bit more patient, tend to have a little more kindness running through your day. You are able to sleep more soundly and wake up in an energetic way. That Probably the meditation is, is working. It's fine. But below the surface, it's also transforming your consciousness to allow you to look at the world in a much different way. But it's subtle and it's slow. It's a gradual process. So it's very hard to identify. Think of it this way. Say you live with somebody, like we live here in this uh, community at IBMC, and and you see the person every day, and and you have interactions, and you talk, and, and blah, 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 blah. So is the person getting older? Well, logically, we would say yes, the person is getting older. But, you know, it's really hard to tell... Because I see them every day, and aging is such a gradual process that it's hard to point out any specifics of that person's aging. But now say you haven't seen the person in 10 years, and you have a chance encounter at Vaughn's supermarket, and there he is, and you take a look at him, and you go, whoa, he's really aged. (laughs) Because there's been this pause in your relationship for 10 years. So if you were able to see yourself when you started to meditate and then see yourself 10 years later and the way you responded to the world rather than the way you reacted to the world, you could probably tell the difference. You could probably see something has changed. You might even be able to point at it and identify it as, yeah, I can see this meditation practice is starting to work because look at what I'm doing now that I never did before. But because we live with ourselves and see ourselves every day and every moment of the day, sometimes it's hard to discern what changes have occurred or what changes are occurring. So we need to have the confidence of a meditator. Confidence in in this way, that we sit down to meditate, not because we know there's going to be a change, not because we expect there to be a change but because change is one of the primary motivations of our life the buddha said we have three key philosophies that we need to keep aware of all the time we should base our life on these three key philosophies now number one is Anicja. Everything is always changing moment to moment all the time. So we don't need to pretend to have faith or even have a false sense of confidence that when we're meditating, the change is going to happen. A change always happens, and meditation makes that change a positive one. The, the second aspect of Buddhist philosophy or dhammology is that Life is ultimately unsatisfactory because we have desire, we have attachment, and everything changes. Now, the problem with the change is that even when things are good and the way they're supposed to be, they only last for a moment or two. And then some of the conditions necessary for that to be good or perfect changes as does the perfection or the good and now we're disappointed why did it have to change couldn't it stop changing just for a moment so i could enjoy the day or the week or the month because it was just perfect and it doesn't work that way so the desire is to hold on the desire is the attachment to hold on and not let the good stuff change. And the aversion we have, which is another form of desire, is to push away and change immediately and get rid of. And those two things, the attachment and the aversion, causes us so much suffering that Buddhism says, this meditation practice, this practice of the Dharma is designed... To bring you to a place of peace, joy, and equanimity where there is no attachment, where there is no aversion, where everything is just the way it's supposed to be, and you have acceptance of that. And because you accept it the way it's, it is, not the way it's supposed to be, you are suffering less. Okay, all makes sense so far all you have to do is just look at your life and look at your practice and you see the change and you see the dissatisfaction because we always want things to be different than they are and then the third thing the buddha said is so important in our practice is the fact that we are not who we think we are we do not exist in the way we think we do because we have something called a personality or an ego, which is a wonderful gift. We need it in this very complicated world, but this separation of thinker and thinking, okay, is an important important aspect of meditation, that we create a false dichotomy. Now, having said false dichotomy... Reverend Hung Shurer one time said, that's a false dichotomy, Kusla. That's a false dichotomy. And I said to him, but aren't all dichotomies false? And he said, yes, they are. And why would all dichotomies be false? Because the ultimate reality, according to Buddhism, is that everything is interconnected and interdependent And so having a dichotomy, breaking something into two, when there's literally only one, becomes false and misleading. But in our meditation practice, we come to realize that the thinker and the thinking are two different things. And if we can start to understand what the thinker is... We start to see that we have this consciousness and subconsciousness that allows us to formulate what our existence means to us. So, the way we think is the way we exist. And if you want to change your existence and make it more positive, you need to change the way you think about your existence. And what did I, um, Sidney Portier. Poor, uh, who just passed away at 94, I think. Um, great actor, great man. At one point in an interview I was watching, uh, they asked him, what did you find out about yourself? You've done a lot of work. You've, you've been uh, a social activist. You've been uh, an actor who has won awards. You've, you've lived a good lifestyle, a good life but what have you found out about yourself? And, you know, he thought for a moment, there was a pause, and he thought for a moment, and he said, I'm a good person. That's what I realized, that I'm a good person. And I thought to myself, wouldn't that be nice, once we get to be 80 or 90, if we're ever so lucky, to look back at our life and say to ourselves, you know, I was a good person. And that's what this path of buddhism allows us it allows us to be a much better person because we have discipline and and we have meditation and we have wisdom now the discipline again i was surprised by the discipline because when i first came to buddhism uh, i was told that if you want to be an official buddhist you have to take five precepts and three refuges. And I'm going, okay, five precepts. What the hell are those? You know, and are, are they like the Ten Commandments? Is that what we need to follow? And, and my teacher at the time, Shinzen Young, said, no, 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 no. It's much different. So he said, the first precept is you have to honor life. Okay, well, how do you honor life? Why well, you don't take it. You don't kill it. You don't snuff it out. Okay, okay. So does that mean that uh, if I have a cockroach in my room that I shouldn't kill it? He said, well, if you can find a workaround to that, that would be better. That would be better. If you can, if you can catch it and take it outside uh, or keep your room so clean that the cockroaches don't want to go in there or you know, put a little spacer between the bottom of the door and the floor so nothing can get through. There are a lot of ways to not kill a cockroach. But it requires you to think about how not to do it, and it requires you to see that every life has value. So I tell you, when I I became a Buddhist, I didn't think that the life of a cockroach had much value, and the life of a mosquito had even less. Uh, But as I practiced and as I started to understand how rare how rare it is to be born. Then I, it, it started to dawn on me that, yes, all life deserves a chance if it finally makes it here. We're the only planet in the universe that we know of that can support life as we know it. It's amazing. And they keep showing up. I, I don't know how many insects or mammals or birds... Or fish i don't know how many there are but there's always more most of the time sometimes some of the creatures become extinct but then others seem to take their place and humans there's no stopping us we've got seven billion and we're working on more okay No stopping us. And each one of those lives, whether it's in Afghanistan or Cambodia or South Central or Polis Verdes, has value. It has value. So that was a very interesting wake-up call when I took that first precept and started to understand what it meant. The second precept was, you know, uh, stealing stuff, which I never really did anyway, but but i thought to myself you know why is there so much emphasis on not stealing and here in los angeles we've had these 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 groups of people jump into department stores and steal stuff and they all run out together and there's like a hundred of them and they they catch 10 of them and it's it's amazing how are those purses and shoes going to change your life in a positive way i thought to myself well it dawned on me after thinking about not taking life and then not stealing is that the not stealing thing is because we are so delusional that we think we own stuff. And I'm going, wow, but don't I own my car? You know, it's, you know, you pay cash or you charge it or you credit and and you get it. Maintenance and you polish it up and then make it look good, and you feel good behind the wheel and it has a heater if it's cold and air conditioning if it's warm and you know but i I got this thing called a receipt you know that says I own this car and then then the government, the state of California says in my registration that I own this car that I'm responsible for this car, and then my insurance company says. You need us because you're responsible for that car, and if you get into an accident, they're going to take everything you own, so get insurance, and we just happen to have a wonderful policy for you. I, OK. So here we go. So we have the delusion of ownership, and, and that delusion, that delusion causes us to, to covet hold on to cling to prevent protect whatever it is we think we own now the other day i went out to my car after the rain we had four inches of rain downtown l.a a few days ago man and you know what i found on my car i found cat footprints all over my car they walked up the windshield they walked on this, on the roof they walked on the hood They walked on the trunk. I had these little cat footprints everywhere. And I thought to myself, don't these cats know that I own this car? It's not their property and they shouldn't be on it. And then it dawned on me that, no, the cats really didn't know anybody owned this car. The cats don't even know what a car is. So there you go, you know? It's just this delusion that creates us more suffering. So the idea is we don't want to steal stuff. Because that causes the person that thinks they own the stuff we're stealing to suffer even more. Okay, makes sense to me. Number three, number three, sexual misconduct. Oh man, it happens all the time. And and why is that bad? Because it causes people who are in relationship to suffer. And because they're suffering, they might do just terrible things to end their suffering by taking revenge on the people who are practicing sexual misconduct. And that's just part of it. It goes on and on and on. So we need to understand that our sexuality is here to populate the earth and that we need to have restraint and we need to have discipline and we can do it. It just takes practice number four speak skillfully don't say things you're going to regret a day a week or a month later don't don't have hate speech don't have all these things that cause people to feel uncomfortable because of what you said because they think what you said might lead to what you're going to do next and that causes them fear and dread and we need, to be, we need to be skillful in what we say and how we say it. And if you come to a place where you can't say anything good about something, noble silence is the way to go. And the fifth thing is don't get high. Because when you get high, you lose every bit of wisdom you ever had, and you end up doing terrible things, probably breaking the other four precepts and not even know you're doing it and causing so much suffering to yourself and to others. And when you finally wake up from your drunken, you know, escapades, there you are in jail after DUI and owe $10,000 and you don't even know how you got there. So sobriety is such an important aspect of the Buddhist path Because we're working hard to transform our consciousness. Those are a few of the things I think were interesting about Buddhism and still are.